you're joining us new, you're joining us in the middle of a sermon series entitled Sensible Faith, and we're going through the senses, examining, uh, maybe going through the senses with a redemptive focus, to see how the Lord has used our senses or how he speaks about them. And today we're at smell, the sense of smell. Which, if you think about it, you hardly ever think about the sense of smell. It's the kind of sense that just operates on its own. You don't have to tell your nose to smell, and you certainly can't tell your nose not to smell. Things show up, they just smell. And you don't really even have to think about it. You can't direct your nose, you can't smell that corner of the room. You know, like if you're interested, what does that smell like? You can't really do it. It seems just kind of like it takes in whatever's there and it processes it. And by and large, it goes ignored. Probably right now, you're, well, right now you're thinking of smell, of course, but 30 seconds ago you weren't thinking of smell, unless the person next to you smells. <laughs> and then you're thinking about it. And that's the thing about smell is you're either not thinking about it or when it gets your attention, it owns you. Have you ever been in the airport and you walk by the Cinnabon place? Oh, brother. That's why I like traveling alone, because then I can get a big Cinnabon and my wife doesn't know about it. I get the big ones. Or if you go grocery shopping and you're hungry already and you walk past the bakery aisle in the grocery store, it's hard sometimes not just to buy stuff. I mean, just to buy because it smells so good. Buy stuff you've never even eaten before because it smells good. And the same is true in the other direction. There's stinky things. That when, when they come into our nose, we react, we almost kind of lurch in response to something that stinks. And not in a way that we agree in our mind that we're going to kind of wrench away. It just happens. Our nose owns us. You drive by a skunk, and you go, ah. You just respond in such a visible way. It's unconscious. Yesterday, we spent the day at the farm, and we brought our dog. He got into something which I'm not even allowed to say here. So we threw him in the trunk on the way home, and the whole drive home, we just gagged. I mean, we actually gave the kids each a handkerchief to keep on the nose, and for 25 minutes, they had a handkerchief on their nose. That's how bad it was. And when we washed our dog, I saw green water. I mean, it was just a disaster. That, I couldn't not smell it. And it totally shaped. It's even shaping my day even now. So it's strange. It's strange how the sense of smell, it's, it's uh, not significant in our daily conscious lives, but when, when it arrives, it almost seems to hold the hammer of judgment over an object. If it doesn't smell right, it doesn't matter. You don't like it. It's just it has to pass the smell test. That seems to be how our prayers work with God. doesn't matter what you say. Doesn't matter how, how you approach him necessarily or whether you get everything right, if it doesn't pass the smell test, it doesn't count. That's kind of, if I'm trying to understand why does the Lord use the scent of smell in particular when he's relating it to prayer, the sense of smell does, hardly shows up in Scripture with regards to the Lord except in smell and of sacrifice. So, in these ideas of how we approach the Lord, that's when the sense of smell shows up. And then it shows up not just once or twice, it shows repetitively, almost as if the way we approach the Lord has to pass the smell test. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to examine what does it mean 
to create a pleasing aroma before the Lord. That's the phrase, by the way, that the Old Testament scriptures use in sacrifice. The goal of sacrifice is to graze a pleasing aroma before the Lord. That's the goal. In Leviticus and Numbers, it's said over 35 times. If you do this, it will raise a pleasing aroma before the Lord. Other areas in Scripture talk about raising up the prayers as though they were incense. In Revelation, the prayers of the saints are gathered by an angel and they're put into a basin with, with incense and they're burned up for the Lord. And that's when the blowing of the trumpets begins in the book of Revelation. So you have this idea of our prayers or our offerings or our sacrifices rising before the Lord for Him to smell in the hopes that they're pleasing. This is something that, uh, as we head into this, I want you to think about a little bit. The aroma that we create does not have to do with your righteousness or what you've done. Do you hear this? It doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with your offering and your sacrifice. So let me, let me give you an example of this. In Genesis chapter 6, the Lord determines that he's going to destroy the earth because he looks down on mankind and he sees that every thought of their mind is always wicked all the time. He says that. The inclination of man is always evil all the time. He says, I regret I made man. I'm going to destroy the earth. And so he does. He does destroy the earth except save one family. Noah and his family are saved and they're carried along by the ark. When the ark finally hits dry ground and Noah climbs out, what does he do? He sacrifices a burnt offering to the Lord. And this is what it says about the burnt offering. It's Genesis 8. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Did he say never again will I destroy the earth because man's better now? Did he say because man will do a good job? Does he say because I'm starting over and we'll get it right this time? Does he say because you won't mess up again? No, he says despite the fact that man is absolutely the same after the flood as before the flood. I'm making this promise because the aroma from the sacrifice was so pleasing. It stirred me. We will not satisfy the Lord through righteousness. Our Lord's satisfaction is found through sacrifice. This morning we're going to center this conversation around this idea of how do we generate a pleasing aroma? How does that happen? What is going on? Because I really don't think we understand sacrificial law. It's almost been completely neglected in, in our kind of church, the modern church. We just don't pay attention to it. It's boring. It's overly detailed. It's tedious. It's Old Testament. It's, it's yucky, right? You and I are no longer of the cultural habit where we slaughter an animal. So even to deal with the slaughtering of an animal is an obstacle that we have to get past. Back then, they didn't even think twice about that. They were slaughtering animals. I thought about taking a survey to see who here has wrung the neck of a chicken. Um, I see one hand. Uh, there's a few around here, just a few. Ringing chickens' necks was everyday business back in the day. A hundred years ago, it was everyday business. So there's a lot of obstacles we have towards appreciating 
this idea of the sacrificial rites. And so when the Lord says, if you do all this well, then it'll raise a pleasing aroma before us. We really don't know what all of this is. In fact, we've kind of boiled it down. We've boiled and condensed and strained and sifted all of the Old Testament sacrificial law to equal Jesus. When we get to Leviticus, we kind of go yada, 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 Jesus. Blah, 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 Jesus. And we have these kind of coy statements, or we quote the one-liners of the New Testament, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we go, see, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. The problem is, is when John the Baptist said that, he said it among Jews. So he wasn't simplifying. He was conjuring. Imagine if you were a Hebrew at the baptism, and the baptizer stood up and went, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You would, What? it would be so full of meaning for you because you would remember when you were five when your father took you to the temple to offer a ram for the birth of your baby brother. Or you might remember when you traveled up with your father just like Jesus did on the Day of Atonement and on other festivals and offerings. You would have seen these things happen. You would have watched the way worship manifested itself in a visual way, in an oral way. You'd smell the, you'd smell the fires in the cities or in the city of Jerusalem, the fires billowing up from the temple. You'd smell these things. The city would smell the burnt offerings and know it is being atoned for. But when we see these one-liners, they just reduce. Sacrifice. Jesus. And so we're going to work to desimplify it today. Because I'm concerned. I'm concerned that maybe we approach Christ in a more casual way than we would if we appreciated the depth of detail of the Old Testament. And you realize sacrifice was the central part of the law of God's people. And we kind of draw a big line through it because it's tedious. I think that Christ is not the richer for us doing that. I think we've oversimplified Christ. I think we've oversimplified what it means to pray for forgiveness, what it means to pray for atonement, what it means to receive his forgiveness, what it means to have Christ or the Lord's satisfaction over us because of Christ's blood. I think all of these things have been simplified to their detriment. And so this morning we're going to, to kind of approach this question of how do we raise a pleasing aroma to the Lord? And I have two confessions or two, two thoughts before we do this. First of all, it's going to be hard. Um, so I, I've moved a lot in my life, and we've always had a piano. We've been cursed with a piano. So when we finally get it off the truck and you put it on the dolly, you can typically move the piano the whole way up the driveway with one guy and a dolly. He just kind of, I mean, it's not this easy. I'm just roaming the stage. But you can just push it up. Then it gets to the step. Right? One step to get into the threshold of the home. And you need, we, need, we had a big piano. Five men around it, and, the, and then the count to get it up the step. You now know why we no longer have this piano. Heave it up. Well, today I want you to think we're not pushing this piano. We're not going to cover a lot of distance. We're going to have to work to get up one step because it's tedious. And here's my second thing: is I barely know what I'm talking about. You think you don't know sacrificial law? Nobody knows sacrificial law. I am 7,000% smarter on this today than I was on Monday. So, so bear with me. I'm going to be as accurate as I can before the Lord. Um, but I reserve the right a year and a half to come back and nuance this. And say, I didn't 
get it exactly right. I got it mostly right. So with that, let's pray, and uh, we'll turn our attention to the Word. Lord, we do give you this time, Father. We pray your Spirit will work truth in each one of us that needs to be said and spoken, Lord. I pray ears to hear. I pray a heart to receive, Lord. And I pray even, even Lord, that this service, this worship of your people would be a pleasing aroma before you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1. If you're using a Bible in the seat back, it's page 69. Genesis chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. Thank you. Leviticus chapter 1. You've passed the test. Now, if, if you're there or if you're approaching there, I, I just want you to peruse with me, especially if your Bible has titles. Genesis or Leviticus 1, good grief. Leviticus 1, the burnt offering. Leviticus 2, the grain offering. 3, the fellowship offering. 4, the sin offering. 5 and a half, the guilt offering. 6 and a half, the burnt offering. The grain offering again. Sin offering again. A guilt offering again, a fellowship offering, eating fat and blood from sacrifices, the priest's share as related to sacrifice and offering, the ordination of Aaron's sons in order that they might sacrifice and offer, the, the priests begin their ministry, which is sacrifice and offering, chapter 10, the death of Nabad and Abihu, because they failed to appropriately sacrifice and offer to the Lord, God burns them up. And it goes on and on. So with that said, today I'm going to try to not simplify it the way we always do, but there's no way I'm not going to not simplify this. I have to simplify it. So there are a host of different kinds of offerings. Each of them has their own ritual, their own rites, and they have their own meanings. So we have a burnt offering for atonement, we have a sin offering, and we have a guilt offering. What? Isn't it the same? This, don't you see how we've oversimplified it? But to us, it all just sounds synonymous. And yet, there are times you'd have to go to the tabernacle, you'd have to offer a sin offering before you could offer a burnt offering. We need to read this stuff. So we're going to deal today, because we have time, we're going to deal with the burnt offering. Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 9. It's the mainstay meat and potatoes offering of the Hebrew people. It it expresses all of the major themes of the other rites of offering, and it's not a derivative of any kind of offering. Most of the offerings spin off of this idea. So they take this, and they'll say, but instead of this, do this. So we're going to grab the major one, we're going to focus on that, and hope to draw some truths from it. So today, we'll be in Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 9. How do we raise a pleasing aroma before the Lord? I'm going to read very slowly. Verse 1, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. 
He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat on the burning wood that is on the altar. He is to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now we're going to go through this step by step. What does it take to create an aroma? There's going to be no radically new answers here. You probably know the answers because the simple answer is right. It's Jesus. I'm not going to say anything new there. I just want us to walk through it and maybe kind of curb the casual way we approach the Lord. So, how do we create this pleasing aroma? Well, the first thing is said here in verse 2. It says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering. Do you notice that? It's an issue of when, not if. When you bring the offering. Not if you bring the offering. When you bring the offering. This isn't a case of maybe one day you're going to sin, or maybe one day you're going to do something that is burnt offering worthy when you bring an offering. This is the issue, right here is the issue in our minds of, do we sin or are we sinful? We are sinful. We're not good people who occasionally sin. We are people who are full of sinfulness. We're sinful. It's a win question. We're going to always mess up. None of us are ever going to be born and be raised in the world, and maybe, just maybe, they won't have to go present a burnt offering before the Lord. When you go. This is how to do it. This is so true that the, the tabernacle had a rule, the way they operated every morning and every evening, sunrise and sunset, they offered a burnt offering before the Lord. Every single day, burnt offerings, morning and evening before the Lord, because the people were so sinful that they had to constantly be living beneath the smoke and incense of atonement for themselves. This isn't the world. The priests aren't sacrificing for the world. They're sacrificing for the people of God. And there's always smoke going up. In fact, the law said at night, when you light at sunset, when you light the last burnt offering, it said leave it on the fire all night. Don't take it off. And make sure the fire is there all night so that all night the Lord is being pleased by the smoke. And it said in the morning when you get up, Deal with the fire right away so that you can put another one on for the day. And it went around, round and around. Always burnt offering on the altar. There was never a time when there was not a burnt altar on the altar for the people. When? Here's the second thing. You have to bring the sacrifice to the tabernacle. So when you sin... Because we're sinful, we don't sit at home and figure out the best way that we think we need to make this right with God. 
we don't kind of navigate the spiritual realm in such a way as to ask, who is God, what does God expect from me, and how can I make this right? God says, you can't do that. You can't devise your own idea of me, your own idea of righteousness, your own idea of of infraction of righteousness, and your own idea to make up with it. You have to come to my place. I make the rules. I set down what atonement means. You have to come to me. There's no other place to find atonement. There's no place. I know we have our prayer closets. There are no prayer closets in Leviticus. I know that we say our own little prayers. There are no own little prayers in Leviticus. They do not exist. There is not atonement outside of the tabernacle. I'm just saying the text. We'll get to where this is, but that's what it says. So let's say that. Let's say we sin because we're sinful and we go to the tabernacle. Does that create a pleasing aroma to the Lord? That we arrive at the tabernacle and the priest says, what are you doing here? And you say, I've sinned before the Lord and I'm here for atonement. Is that how we get a pleasing aroma? No, not yet, right? We still have to do something. And this next step is we have to bring an animal from our herd or our flock. An animal from the herd or the flock. It has to cost you something. There's no way that you can go seek atonement for your infraction and it'd be of no cost. It has to cost something. True penitence is costly. And it's not the kind of costly that we like to think of, of like owing, owning up to our mistake. This is not an issue of reparation. In fact, let's say that you had cheated the Lord, or let's say you had cheated a partner, a fellow farmer, out of something. You would go to the tabernacle, and you'd say, you know, I cheated on my taxes. And they would say, well, you need a guilt offering, and you need to fully make reparations for your taxes, And you go, okay. And then they'd say, and then you need a burnt offering. You'd have to do two. You'd have to make a guilt offering of reparation for the infraction against the law you had just committed, and you'd have to make it good. Whatever that is, you'd have to make amends. And then they would say to you, for you to be atoned, you would still have to make a burnt offering. Now, why is that? You've just made it straight. Because you're sinful. Don't you see? The infraction... That's one thing. The fact that you have sinned before Almighty God is a totally different thing. God is saying to you right now, you are subject to death according to the law. The verdict is out. You have inf- you've made an infraction upon his holy word. You're subject to death. You're guilty, and the penalty of, of this infraction is death. On the day that you eat from this tree, you will surely die. You're guilty unto death. And so you have to make reparations But the burnt offering is not for reparations. The burnt offering is not to set it right with your neighbor or to straighten it out with the Lord. The burnt offering is to make atonement for your soul because you are guilty unto death. And that comes at a cost. It's always costly. You know, it's here that we begin to point our attention towards Christ we begin to think about his role. When we say sacrifice, we just go to Jesus. This is one of those places sometimes we can skip is the great cost that his sacrifice has come. Because we didn't pay it. It came at some, someone else's great cost. 
God, when we came to the field and we had to go for the atoning sacrifice and the burnt offering, what the Lord said to us is, leave your sheep in the pen, take mine. That's what he said. He said, take from my household my offering. It will offer on your behalf, but it still cost. It still came at great cost. The Lord had to turn his own attention away from his son. He had to, to abandon his son at the offering. The creator of the universe did that. Because all atonement comes at a cost. But this is something else that's worth paying attention to. It is always costly, but it's always affordable. If you read Leviticus and you start going through the law, you know, I was thinking to myself, man, how many people have a bull sitting around for a burnt offering? And what if you have a bad week? What if you bring a bull and you turn around and you cut somebody off with your wagon getting on, you know, on the off-ramp, and you're like, for crying out loud, you got to bring another bull back. I mean, I can honestly see myself just bringing 30 bulls. You know, like a whole, a whole line of bulls. You know, and I was thinking, how is this possible? How could somebody poor do this? You know what the scriptures say? They say, look, if you don't have a bull, if you're not wealthy, bring a bird. Bring a pigeon. Bring a dove. And then the word says this, and if you don't have that, bring a meal of fine flour. You see this? The Lord is saying it it will always be shown as costly, but I will always ensure that it's affordable. I will have no one among my people who cannot receive the atonement I offer. It's always costly, but it's always affordable. So does this create a pleasing aroma before the Lord that we bring an animal from our herd before him and offer it up to him because of our sinfulness at the tent of meeting? Is that what it is to have a pleasing aroma? Not quite. You see, the next step here is we have to offer a male without defect. We have to offer a male without defect. Which means we cannot go to our herd and grab the run of the litter with a broken leg and one eye. That we, that's on the verge of death anyway. We can't give it CPR the whole way to the tabernacle and then like throw it on the altar. Quite the opposite. We have to go to the field and we have to grab the male specimen from which our hopes and dreams for the rest of the flock were going to be. That's the one. Don't you see what God's trying to do? God's trying to say, look, your sinfulness out of my grace, I am allowing you to place on something else. That thing cannot be sinful. Otherwise, it needs to be atoned for. The object that's going to pay our price on the altar cannot be in need itself. And the way that it shows with animals, because the Lord's certainly not going to say, for your sin, you need to go sacrifice a human. The Lord's using animals as our illustration of need for atonement. So he's saying, you need to grab a pure animal without defect as though it was a human without sin. A limping bull is a sinful human. Something with defect or, or, or some kind of illness or disease, it simply will not count for us. It needs to have no sin in itself. It needs not to require its own atonement in order that it may pay for yours. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. He who is without defect. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He humbled himself even to that of a man so that he might bear our burden. We can be so simple about this. 
So let's say, let's say we bring an animal without defect. We bring it to the temple. Because of our sinfulness, we give this animal over. Does that bring a pleasing aroma to the Lord? Not yet. We still have to do something. We talk to the priest. The priest says, why are you here? We say, we're here because we're making a burnt offering for sin. The priest says, place your hand on the head of the animal. And you have to. You, not the priest. We don't hand the animal over to the priest, and the priest doesn't lay his hand and pray for your sinfulness. You have to, with your hand, place your hand on the head of the animal, press it down. The Hebrews press it down, not lay it down. Press it on the animal as though you're transferring from yourself the sin and the iniquity that's not going on this animal. I've heard people before. I've heard people exchange, was it the Jews who killed Jesus or the Romans who killed Jesus? You killed Jesus. He has borne on himself the iniquities of us all. I think the crown of thorns is the hands of mankind bearing down on the head of the sacrifice. We have all, we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have placed our hands on Christ and we've pressed him down. It says he bears the iniquities. We're pressing down, pushing our sin into his body. And then, then do we get a pleasing aroma? Is that what it says? Not yet. The priest looks to you and says, now you may slaughter the animal. The priest doesn't slaughter the animal. You have to slaughter the animal. You have to grab your blade and you have to spill its blood with your blade and you have to cut it and kill it because it's your sin for which it's, being, it's atoning for. And while you do this, the priest has a basin and he's underneath the neck of this bull and he's gathering the blood from the animal because the, he's going to use the blood later to, 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 to put on the altar so that from whatever angle the Lord might approach your atonement for, he sees the blood of the spotless animal covering it. But you have to kill it. When we go to prayer, when we go simply to prayer, do we think of these things? I sometimes wonder, that might be the reason I keep going back to prayer. Because it's so simple on the way in. I'm so mindless of the cost. I'm so mindless of the sacrifice. I'm so mindless of the things that I have, I have heaped upon my, my Christ that I can just keep coming back. You place your hands on him. You kill him. Then do we have a pleasing aroma? Not yet. Because while the priest is arranging the altar and he's doing his own things and throwing the blood, he's actually splashing the blood against the altar. Splashing it against the altar. You can imagine the hands of the priest just covered, red hands all day. Imagine being a priest. You would grow up saturated with the need of atoning blood splashing the blood against the altar. While he's doing that, you're dressing the animal. You're skinning it down, removing the skin because there's the filth on the skin. You're even, you're cutting off the legs and the organs and all of these and you're washing them in a basin because you cannot give something unclean and place it on the altar. So even the organs have to be washed. Even the legs and things have to be washed. Everything has to be put up on the altar and it all is burned in its entirety. Some offerings we make were shared. You make a fellowship offering. You burn a little bit to the Lord as thanks for fellowship. The priest gets some who thank you for fellowship. 
and you get some and go half fellowship. That was kind of the idea, is it encouraged fellowship. On the burnt offering, God gets it all. Because we just don't sin in part, do we? We sin in whole. It wasn't just my hands that did it. I did it. It's not just our mind. In fact, the scriptures say there, it places the head, it places the feet of the animal, and it places the body of the animal. That's heart, soul, mind. All need to be burned up before the Lord for atonement. Now do we get a pleasing aroma. We brought our animal, male without defect. We've placed our hands upon him, confessed our sins. He's taken his sins upon him. We've cut and spilled his blood. We've had his pieces placed upon the altar. Now do we have a pleasing aroma. I don't know. Because I don't know what kind of priest you have. Has he done his job? See this? We don't come to the God's house and make an, an offering before him when we ourselves are sinful. How can we do that? How can we who are sinful enter the audience of God? We can't do that. The whole reason we're at the tabernacle is because we've broken fellowship with God. We who are, are, have sin between us and God can't, can't approach him. I can't. I couldn't in my own hands place something on the altar. If I had done that and I was Hebrew, I would be struck dead. I'd be thrown outside the camp to have the gall to walk into the tent of meeting and place my own offering on the sacrifice? How could we do that? We have a need for a mediator. We have a need for someone who's sitting between us and our sin and God, someone who's pure and clean and, has, and, and, and who can mediate between us and God the whole time. We are in need of a priest. No matter what we bring before the Lord, no matter what we confess before the Lord, if there is no priest to make intercession on our behalf, God does not hear it. God does not smell it. Requirements for the priest is that he's clean and pure. In fact, he has to do purification offerings for himself. He has to be very careful about what he touches. He has to watch and observe many, many rules just to be able to have the capacity to listen to you when you arrive at the tent of meeting. In fact, the word says this, that he must be a male without defect. If he has any deformity of his own, he can never once in his life stand before the altar. He'll be like priest 34 Bravo who picks up the lampstand when the camp moves. He cannot offer if he is a male of defect. He has to be clean. Not only that, he has to maintain that there's a fire on the altar. There must be a fire at all times burning on the altar. That was one of the main roles of the priests, was to maintain this fire. In fact, if you read, in fact, if, if you just look, Exodus 40 is right before Leviticus 1. Right there is where the tabernacle is consecrated. God's fire comes down, wham! It hits the altar, the glory of God descends, there's, there's smoke and, and, and just this awesome display of God's power. That is when God lit the altar, and essentially what God is saying is, is, I don't want my fire to ever go out. You don't start the fire. I start it, and you keep it going. And the Lord says, all the time, day and night, I want this fire lit. I want there to be fire, because there should never be a time when my people have to come for atonement, and I cannot smell it. What if we had committed some sin, and we went to the tabernacle, and we were, we were there to offer atonement for it, and the priest said, Oof. 
uh, it's going to take me a few hours to get the fire going. Why don't you come back after lunch? That would be an unforgivable sin for the Lord. In fact, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, perished because they offered unauthorized fire. They did not deal with the fire appropriately. And God's fire came out of the tent of meeting and consumed them both. There must be fire. And the priest must present the blood and the sacrifices in just the right way. And then do we get a pleasing aroma. We offer up the the sacrifice in the right way. We have a priest who is perfect and mediates for us in just the right way. Now do we get a pleasing aroma? I don't know. I don't know what kind of attitude you have. Is your heart repentant? Do you grieve God's disappointment? Do you, do you regret having done what you did? Do you repent and, and turn away? Do you have a heart of contrition? Do you have these things? Time and time and time again in the Old Testament, the Lord says, I'm tired of the offerings. I just want righteousness. Or your offerings make me sick because you go through all of the motions, you know all the right words, you know exactly how to look repentant, but your heart is not repentant. This, I think, is the danger of an oversimplified sacrificial system. When we just go sacrifice, yada, 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 Jesus, I think we run into this where at some point we become far too casual with the way we approach the Lord. Is God hearing your prayers? Psalm 51 says this, if I can find it. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it, says David. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We could have the sacrifice. We can have the mediator. But if we do not have a contrite heart that's broken for the Lord, there is no aroma that is pleasing to him. Do you see what a great distance there is between us and the satisfaction of God? The fact that God now, because of the work of Christ, is satisfied does not, mean, does not simply mean that, that there is not this distance. It's that Christ has gone this great distance. Christ is our Lamb. Ephesians 5.2 says this, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. First Peter says it this way, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So of these major chapters of being right before the Lord, Christ has supplied the need for a perfect sacrifice. That's taken care of. But in addition to that, in addition to that, Christ is not only our sacrifice, he's our priest. He's spoken of as being the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, of having, of having bridged this gap of being a mediator. Hebrews 7 says this, Such a high priest meets our needs, 
one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Listen to this. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. Christ is our offering and Christ is our mediator. He is our priest and he is our lamb, which leaves one thing for us. What is your attitude? That's the only thing you bring to the tent of meeting. The only thing we bring to the tent of meeting is our attitude. Are we repentant? Do we have a heart of contrition? Do we turn away from our sins? Do we regret what we've done? That's the only thing that's in the way of us in a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You know, I'm thankful. I'm thankful we don't live in the time of Leviticus where we would have this kind of feudal life of constantly bringing sacrifice, of never knowing, are we righteous in the sight of God? Have we done enough for God? Are we, are we, are we still under his condemnation? Has it been done the right way? What if the priests aren't good? What if we're not good? What if my bull wasn't good enough? All of that, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that Christ has rescued us from that, of this, this air of caution and fear. But I'm equally concerned that we've been rescued into a place of casuality, of just going to God in whatever way we see fit of saying whatever we want to the Lord, of of you spending His grace as though it's limitless. I think there's a place in the middle where we're not to be cautious and fearful, but we're not supposed to be casual. I think we're just supposed to be confident. Confident in that what God's done for us is sufficient. Confident that there's no distance between us because Christ has mended this distance, but thoughtful of the distance that has been closed Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and full assurance of faith. And he ends this way, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. My prayer this morning is that in confidence, we might acknowledge the work of Christ and realize that this is not simple. That He has done, He has done marvelous things on our behalf. He has been our sacrifice, He's been our priest, and I hope that that would shape our attitude.